So the section for us is right here in chapter 1, going to be verses 9 through 14. So last time we were in Ephesians two weeks ago, right before, or actually right when we got back and then before Manny left, he um, preached that first section right there. Now, as Manny told you guys, and he kind of set my parameters for this week, I had no choice in doing it. Um, I'm stuck with 19 through four, or 9 through 14. <laughs> so Manny worked his way through 1 through 8, stopped right there at the end of verse 8, and we'll pick up right here at 9. So um, it won't be too weird. It's in the middle of a sentence, but regardless, I, I think we'll still get the point this morning. So um, just a quick recap. So last time when Manny opened this up, he, he, he drew out a few things. And I think that he kind of said it as a side point, but I don't think it's a side point. I think it's actually really important. This is one big, long sentence, which means this is one big connected idea for Paul. Um, Paul's not just trying to write a, uh, he's not trying to write a run on sentence just because he's really, you know, he, you know, he, he tells people, you guys know I'm not a great speaker, but, you know, maybe he fancies himself in writing. Well, he's not doing that. He's putting together a big, long sentence because as he's thinking about what it means to bless God, who has blessed us in Christ, he has a bunch of connected things that go together. And so as we look at it this morning, it'll be very interesting that Manny did stop where he stopped because I think there's actually a, uh, not a shift in thought, but there's a, a shift in emphasis on what we are blessed in Christ. The, the, the first few Manny dealt with uh, the other week. He tells us uh, a, a, a few things and he gave us three things. So Manny said this, God has chosen us in him. That was in verse 4, if you look right there. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then Manny said, second, he has predestined us for the adoption as sons. So sonship or rulership, being united to Christ, makes you more than simply a forgiven sinner. You're an heir along with Jesus Christ. And then third, he made the point there in verse 6 that we've received redemption. And then he qualifies this redemption as the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes in all the way to 8, just, I mean, 6 through 8, he's just, <laughs> Paul really likes to do this. He has a thought, and then he interrupts his thought, and he just has to talk about that one thought, and then he continues his thought. And that's what gets us right up here to 8. So what we're going to get here in 9 through 14 is a continuation of what we have already uh, heard in those first eight verses, but you will notice there is a slight change in emphasis of what Paul is talking about. Now, these are all things that we receive in Christ, but you're going to notice that those first couple things are all really things God did for us, right? God chose us before the foundation of the world. He saw every single one of you individually in Christ, and he said, you're mine, right? And, and, and the same thing with uh, being predestined. You've been predestined to conform into something, a son, and then the same thing with redemption. This is something you have, forgiveness of sins. Very individualistic thing. And then here in 9, you kind of see this kind of slight change in emphasis. So I'm going to do the same thing that Manny did last week. We're going to go through three things um, in this text. So there's, I, I want to say it's, re, it's definitely related to Manny's. I just didn't want to title it the same thing, Bless God Part 2. Eh, the title doesn't ring very well. Um, but I, I want us to see that I think that the heart of this, these next three things, has to deal with what we have in, what we have obtained as an inheritance, right? So as a son, right, you have these things. You've been chosen, predestined to be conformed to something. You were redeemed. You were bought back to God through the forgiveness of sins. And now he lists a couple more things. I think of what you now receive as a son. So we're going to go through three things. 
So the first one is going to be here in uh, verses 9 through 10. So first is going to be this. God has revealed the mystery of His will. That's going to be a gift. Now that's going to sound, that, does, that might sound kind of weird, but we'll really dive into that one. But Paul is actually saying this is a gift in Christ. God's revealed the mystery of His will, not just to anybody. Brethren, He's revealed it to you. He says, all things in heaven and on earth to unite them in Christ. So that's going to be the first point. Second is going to be that we have obtained a great inheritance so that God's glory would be praised. That's 11 through 12. And then the last one is going to be that this inheritance, we are actually guaranteed this inheritance by the seal of the Holy Spirit, who is a down payment of the promised inheritance. That's going to be verses 13 through 14. So we got three points. I think they're all connected together. There may not be just one central point, but they're all connected together. And as I said, I, I think the emphasis here is going to really change into here's things in Christ that not only are done for us, but that we receive because of our sonship. So let's look at the first one. Let's look at verses 9 through 10, the mystery of his will. So Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, Paul says this, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, that was in the middle of a sentence, right? So this just came off of 8. So look, look back at 8 really quick. 8 is also in the middle of a sentence, but at least it's a little bit, a little bit more of a connection, right? Paul has just, has just gone to the, the, the redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and then 8, he says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And then we hit 9 right here. So that's, that's where we're getting into. Now, so verse 9 then is a continuation of this thought in 8 where you have your main verb right here, which is he lavished upon us. So this is very interesting what God has done here. Because verse 9 is beginning off of this thought. So just as God in redeeming you and forgiving you was a display of His lavish grace. I mean, anyone know what it says to lavish grace? What, what the connotation of that is? Yes. <laughs> like, just, it, it's, it's like to spoil. Like, man, I just lavish gifts upon my kids. I just abundantly threw gifts at them or just... I'm just like spoiling them in grace kind of thing. So you got that kind of idea. So he says, just as the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of your soul, which he lavished upon us, so nine is connected with the same thought. So the, 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 these aren't disconnected thoughts. But, but this is very important for us because, because verse nine begins with us. We need to understand that what he follows here in nine, and this really kind of struck me as I was reading this, is something of God's lavish grace to you. His love. And it's this. God has lavished His grace upon you as a Christian by making His will known to you. I mean, is, isn't that kind of a weird thing to think about? We, we think about God lavishing His grace upon a Christian, and we think of the things we just read before. Well, He chose me. He predestined me. He's conforming me. He's 
He forgave me of all my sins. He's redeemed me and bought me back, purchased me from slavery to sin. And that's all true. And then he says, making known to us the mystery of his will is part of this lavish grace that he throws upon you. I mean, you think about all the things he just, oh, I'm just going to throw the whole kitchen sink at my sons, my daughters, my children. And part of it is, I make known the mystery of my will to you as part of the lavish grace that God reveals. And like I, I'm, I had to stop and think about this for myself. And I think we should. Before I, We don't even know what the mystery of the will is yet. The mystery of His will. But just to pause and to think about how that is connected to God's lavish grace upon you as a Christian. And brethren, this is really important because sometimes we can think of the mystery of God's will and we just think about it mechanically. Like, yes, God's got this big, cosmic, grand scheme in mind, and now we know all the parts that are turning to make that scheme come about. And that's true. God, I mean, He is revealing that here. We're seeing this big, grand, cosmic scheme that's going to take place in Christ of uniting all things into Himself. But it's more than that. I mean, He's saying, I lavished grace upon you by revealing the mystery of my will to you. And so God is not just purposed just to show you a big plan. Brethren, He's purposed to reveal His will to you in a loving, relational sense. The way you tell your family or your children, you reveal your will to them because you desire for them to know what you're thinking, what you're doing, how you're loving upon them, what you're planning for them, how you're desiring to lavish gifts upon them. I mean, it, do we stop to think about that? Like, God's revealed His will to us, not just because He's like, well, I want my people to really know the timetable down the future. Oh, oh forget that for a second. He says, because I loved you, I lavished grace upon you, and I did that by telling you, here's my will. I mean, this is how God has been good to you, brethren. He said, here's the mystery of my will. And I, brethren, I really, I stopped and I thought, I don't know the last time I've ever gone, Lord, thank you for revealing the mystery of your will to me. Lavished your grace upon me. You were so kind to me, you said, Aaron, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you, man. I'm going to get you. And then I'm, I'm going to reveal the mystery of my will to you because you're mine or any of you. You never just stopped and said, Lord, thank you. Thank you for revealing the mystery of your will to me. And brother, I'm not even talking here so much about God's personal will for your personal life. That's also true as well. And we're thinking the mystery of his will, which here's what he says just a few uh, lines after that. This is the mystery of his will which he set forth in Christ. And then here is the line of all lines. Think about the mystery of God's will. As a plan for the fullness of time. I mean, you could, you could read that really woodenly and literally as, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of times. Plural, all times. The fullness of all times. God has set forth in Christ the revealing of his will the mystery of His will. It has been set forth in Jesus as the plan for the fullness of all time. So we think about then that idea that God has lavished this upon us, that God, brethren, in His goodness, His kindness, His love for you, has revealed the mystery of His will, which He set before the foundation of the world in the Messiah, in Jesus. 
and that he had this plan set out long ago, ages ago, that he was only going to bring about in the fullness of time. I mean, brethren, that is, I mean, that, isn't that wild? Like God's revealed that to us. Some, I mean, we're talking about it, him saying the mystery of the will set forth as the plan, the plan for the fullness of times, the plan for everything. You think about times and time and ages and ages, and we see Christ and God saves you. He reveals the mystery to you, and he says, here is the mystery of my will revealed before the foundation of the world. I mean, what kind of God does this? God said, here it is. <laughs> here's what it's all about. He says, I want you to know this. It's like he tells you, son, daughter, here's, here's what I've been planning the whole time, and I want you to know it. And more than that, brethren, he lavished it upon you, which means God was pleased to do it. I mean, I've been at times planning things for my son to go do something special with him, to reveal something that he doesn't know. And just the, you just get excited because you know, like, hey, when I tell him this, this kid's going to be like, I tell him we're going to a baseball game, he's going to lose his mind in a good way. Brethren, God was pleased to lavish his love and his grace and say, here's the mystery of my will in Christ set as the plan for the fullness of times, all of it. And I'll be honest with you, brethren, there's a reason we're not struck by that reality. And it's because we think we know everything. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's in one, it's, we also have this problem too. We have the scriptures in their fullness, right? We, we, we have the, we've read the ending. You know how it all ends. So we often hear something as simple as, oh yeah, God, he revealed the mystery of his will to you, set forth the Christ before the fullness of time. We go, yeah. Fullness of time, Jesus comes, he dies, he raises, rises from the dead, and then at the end he's going to return again. You know, it's, we, we, just, we just act like, yeah, been there, done that, we got the t-shirt, we know everything that you're, you're talking about. But brethren, we need to remove ourselves from that kind of mentality like, oh yeah, why would I read the book when I've seen the movie? I know how it all ends. Why waste my time with that kind of thing? And the problem is, brethren, you, you know, and so you anticipate, and so you lose. I mean, we really need to stop and to think. What would it have been like to be in an, a, a Gentile Ephesian to have heard this kind of word? Even for Paul himself, right? You need to imagine how incredible the news would have been to understand the mystery of the true God. That, that even Paul himself, Paul's a Jew with the Old Testament scriptures. And you know what Paul does later in 3? He talks about God and the mystery of God is this, that Jew and Gentile come together in one new man. And then he breaks out in praise. We're talking a Jew who had the Old Testament and may have had hints here and there of this kind of thing. And even he goes, the mystery of this revealed. And he just, he's brother, and he breaks out in praise. Now imagine you're a Gentile Ephesian. I mean, imagine you, you don't have any knowledge of this God up until someone comes and preaches the gospel. None of your forefathers knew who this kind of God was. Brethren, these were pagan Gentiles who had now been brought into the faith. These are the kind of people that, as Nick read the other day, 
and we're going to read this in Ephesians chapter 2, he tells them, remember, therefore, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. And what did they not have, brethren? He says, having no hope and without God in the world. So until Christ had died and he was risen and someone had come to preach to them and they believed the gospel, brethren, they were dead without hope and without God in the world. They didn't, they didn't have it. I mean, the mystery of the will of God was as far off to them as God was actually to them. They didn't, they had no hope for this. And their fathers had no hope. I mean, you think about what some of these people worship, brethren. You think, I mean, you go back and you read about the Greek and the Roman gods. Human beings were just puppets for them. Deceiving them, toying with them, playing with them, lying to them. And here God comes in the gospel, in Christ. And these people hear about Him. And then they're able to hear how He's lavished grace upon people who have never known this God before. And He tells them, I'm revealing the mystery of my will hidden before long ages ago in Christ who was the plan for the fullness of times. Now imagine hearing that kind of news. Oh, brethren, that seems like lavish grace to you now. The mystery of God, His will has been revealed for the fullness of times to me. Because that God loves me and He desires that I would know such a thing? I mean, brother, that is just what lavishness of love and kindness God has where He puts the other gods to shame. Brother, what love is this? That we can look back at that verse and say, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. And brethren, that's also it too. We miss it. It's because we miss just how loving this kind of thing is. Because brother, we know God doesn't owe us anything. And yet, that's not the kind of God He is. He's not just the God who's, I'm just and I'm perfect. I don't owe anything to anybody. And therefore, I'll stay content being quiet. Brethren, that's not the God that we serve. God could very well stay quiet. And you know what? God doesn't. He interrupts and says, Paul says here in 9, according to his purpose. And he had just said this back in 5. How he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. Brethren, God purposed in Christ. He said, I'm going to lavish you in grace. I'm going to lavish the people that I love. And I'm going to reveal the mystery of my will to them so that they could make it known that the fullness of times has now come. Brethren, he did this because he wanted to do it. He did it because he chose to do it. He did it because he chose to love you and to lavish his grace upon you. Brethren, we have a good father. So you remember that. So let's look back at verse 9. Paul says, Making known to us the mystery of his will, and then here's the connecting point. Now, I'm going to read it like this because sometimes when you read Paul, it can be kind of difficult because Paul will just insert things in the middle of his sentences all the time. So if you look at 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, and then he inserts a couple of things right here. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Now, 10 is the continuation of his thought. So he says, back in 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. And then 10, he's finishing his thought to right? Making known to us the mystery of his will too. Here's the mystery. Unite all things in him. 
things in heaven and things on earth. So, Paul doesn't do a lot of uh, legwork here, but he does a little bit. He gives us a brief explanation right here of the mystery of his will being revealed. And that is this, that in Christ, in the fullness of times, this is what God's doing. God's now beginning to unite everything. And how much is he uniting? Well, it's kind of like what we heard in Matthew 28 the other week in the preaching. Brethren, he's doing it in heaven and on earth. This is the kind of thing that God's doing. In Christ, in the fullness of times, the mystery of God's will is this. This is the revealing of the mystery. God in Christ is beginning to unite all things in Him, as He says, in heaven and on earth. And brethren, this is a grand, this is where we can now jump to the grand cosmic aspect of this kind of thing. This thing is looking at all of creation in totality. What God is doing is, is, is like He's looking back at the beginning and He's going to do two things. If Jesus is this revelation of the mystery of God's will, then we can say this. If Jesus is trying to unite all things in heaven and on earth, then we can know from that God's will is to reverse the curse from the beginning and now begin to unite all things in heaven and on earth back towards Him. That's just a, a, a basic deduction from this truth. God is doing in Christ is this great reversal work. What Adam failed to do and plunge us all in, God in Christ now is saying, I'm going to unite all things. Well, in order to do that, he's got to reverse the curse. We can't just jump there. He's got to actually reverse curse. He's got to defeat sin and death. He actually has to uh, bring all things together and then unify all things in him. And, and brethren, this is, this is important because it means that what, what, what God is doing and what he's going to accomplish and this is key. And this is why I think Ephesians, Manny said this when he started, is just so jam-packed here with theology. I mean, we could spend a whole month on chapter 1. But this is really important because Paul is, is, is saying, and, and this is why I said this is important that we actually understand this thought is one long sentence, not because he's showing off, but because the, all the thoughts connected. Brethren, just as God chose you, just as God predestined you, just as God has, has actually brought about redemption for you because you have the forgiveness of sins, so too these things are realities now. What God is doing and will accomplish, He's doing it now. He's starting it now. And that's a very important thing to know, right? right? If God has revealed the mystery of His will in Christ, and that's to unite all things in Him, well, the question would be, is, oh, that's great. That's great. We know as well. Well, when is he doing that? Well, brethren, he's laying this out now. Bless God, because in Christ, this is the thing that he's doing. Just like he chose you, just like he predestined you, just like he forgave you, just like he's revealed his will to you. Brethren, this is the kind of thing that's happening right now. He is truly accomplishing this in Christ. This was the plan for the fullness of times, which have now been brought to reality in Jesus Christ. This is something that God brought in with Jesus when he came and he lived and he died and he rose again. There was a real change in reality that took place. No longer could things stay the same. Jesus was elevated on high to, seat, to sit at his father's right hand. And now he's revealing the mystery of his will. Now that he's elevated to the father's right hand, here's the mystery being revealed. I'm uniting all things in heaven on earth around my son. And that's what he's revealing to us. 
And brethren, Paul draws upon this throughout the entire book of Ephesians. And this just, it's going to be great as we go through this because we're going to see Paul doesn't leave this thought. Like he never leaves this thought in chapter 1. It finds its place in every single chapter in Ephesians. And I'll just give you a couple of them. So as we continue to go through here, you don't need to look. You could just listen or you could, you could try looking. But later on in chapter 1, as we get to the next section in 15, all the way down to 22, he's going to talk about Christ has been exalted for the purpose and something that he's already done. He has placed all authorities and powers under his feet, which once you go to the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, he describes these powers as these cosmic, spiritual, uh, you know, he says our, our, our warfare is not with what? It's not with flesh and blood but the powers and the principalities. And he's going all the way back to chapter 1. And, and right here he's saying, here is how Jesus is uniting all things under him. Well, he has subjected these powers and put them under his feet. We'll talk about reversing some of the curse, brethren. That's what the whole Old Testament is a story about. The nations under the dominion and power of all of these rulers and authorities, with the chief of them being Satan. And Jesus, in, in, in coming and being exalted, the way he's beginning to unite all these things is being spelled out for us immediately after Paul says it. Well, you just keep on reading. Well, now he's putting these powers under his feet that he says there in chapter 1. And then he states right after that, not only is Christ the one who's been made head in putting these powers under his feet, but he has also given the church to be the head over all things too. I mean, I hope Manny really hits on that because that is a wild statement. It's right there in 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, brother, what a wild statement to say. But you can see here what Paul's doing. Paul is proclaiming the mystery of the will, which is to unite all things. And we start seeing all the implications of how that's happening. Jesus has put powers under his feet. He's the ruler now. Jesus has given ruler and dominionship to his church. You get into chapter 2. What is he doing right there? He's, he's taking rebel sinners, both Jew and Gentile, and what is he doing? He's uniting them back towards God. They were once far off, and now he's uniting them. And then what else is he doing in chapter 2? Well, now he's breaking down the dividing wall, right? He's breaking down sin. He's breaking down the curse. He's bringing people back to God. He's bringing even Jew and Gentile together, which was thought of for ages to be an impossibility. I mean, brethren, the book of Ephesians is about how God is uniting all things back into Jesus Christ and restoring things. Brethren, this, if anything, should cause us to have a massive shift in our thinking about life, in our thinking about the world. I mean, would it not, right? I mean, let's, let's just say, for instance, that this isn't true. And the, the truth was, Satan rules everything. There's no hope in this world. You may barely make it out of this world saved. You would live differently. You would think about life differently. You would think about everything differently. Brother, we know that's not the case. We know these truths are the case. God's doing some great uniting work through His Son, in His body, through the church, by putting powers under His feet and uniting people together in the body. And so this should cause us to think, wow, maybe I don't even have to leave here today and do something totally different with my life, but I can think about everything a lot differently now. I mean, brethren... You just imagine you had uh, uh, 
You're writing a history book for someone. I mean, think about my son starting school up again and we're going through all these different books. And sometimes I'm like, why are we doing this book? What's this book for? What's this for? My wife's explaining it to me. I'm just trying to understand what the purpose of this book for and this thing's for. Well, imagine you had to write a history book and said, and someone asked you, well, what's the point of writing the book? What's history really all about? What's happening in history? What's the purpose of all the events? Don't they just occur one after the other, just some endless cycle of events? And brother, we know you have this great answer, literally, of the ages. God has revealed the great answer to all of the ages, all the fullness of time, and now you know. <laughs> you don't have to be a history major. You don't have to go waste your, your time and your money and your life on endless PhDs uh, to, to, to know what's happening in history. God, he said, listen, I've revealed this to babes. I've revealed this to little children. The fullness of time has now been revealed, the mystery by will. I'm uniting all things in Jesus. Brethren, we now we know from the beginning to all the atrocities in history, to all the triumphs in history, all the way till Jesus and where we're going to the end, we know what's happening. Brethren, what a, I mean, we just don't understand because we live in America and that's just already pervaded America. Brethren, in other cultures, that would be such a freeing mentality that there's not a repetitive cycle of being stuck in some kind of nirvana or karma or something. Brethren, we have such a gift in this. And people are really trapped in this. They don't think there's any purpose in life. They don't think we're really going anywhere. Well, brethren, let that change your mind. You have the great answer of the ages. God's been working to reveal His Son, who's the uniter of all things. And He's doing it now. Oh, man. I can think about everything in my life different, right? Our own lives. I mean, you, um, you, you even think about the blessings of God that man he went through in those first couple verses. Brethren, not even those things are disconnected from this idea. Paul didn't just say, well, here's, here's, here's you getting chosen. Here's your predestination. Here's a little forgiveness of sins just for you. Now you go off in your own little corner. Brethren, why is he doing those kind of things? Brethren, he is working those things because he's trying to work out a unification of all creation. And he's saying, this is part of how I do it. You get in here. <laughs> I'm going to give you these things so that you're a part of this great thing. This big unifying of heaven and earth and all the ages put together. And what a thing that he looks at you, Kyle. Brother, he looks at you, Giovanni. Brother, that he looks at you. And he says, and I want you to be one piece in that. I mean, brother, I don't even think we even... I know I don't. So I'm not saying I'm smarter than everybody, brethren. I'm just recognizing I'm a pastor of a church, and even I haven't thought as deeply about this as I should. Brethren, do we, we just we forget how great of a, of a thing that's occurred to us is. When we think about God, how much He's lavished His grace upon us, brethren, He did all those things for you because He took your life and He fit it in the plan for the fullness of times. That your life was already thought about in how everything in history is going to come together. And he put you in it, and you in it, and you in it, and you in it. And he put your children in it. And he put all of us in it together. So that when we look back at it, brethren, our name is not out of this great plan of history. We've been put in it into a good way. God's blessings were lavished upon us. And we were part of the process of God uniting all things together in Jesus Christ. And brethren, this, this actually means this, because this, this is freeing for people, because how do you explain to somebody? Because brethren, if you don't have God or Christ in the world, you can talk all day long about 
how much your life has meaning and how much purpose is in your life. But brethren, there's no reality to that. There's no foundation for that. And this takes something like life, which brethren, all of us in here are going to die. And in three generations, our children's children are not going to know our names probably. And you know what? You're going to be forgotten in history. But you know who you won't be forgotten by? You're not going to be forgotten by the God who placed you in that history as a piece and a pillar in his temple that he's building throughout all of history. So it actually takes what on a worldly scale looks meaningless and trivial and it looks like a breath. Your life looks like a breath. And God actually makes it something meaningful. He says it's not trivial and it's not small even though our lives at times really do feel small and trivial. I mean, brother, who can take that and make that into something? Only God can do that. Which means, brother, your life has meaning. And it means then that this is part of how God has lavished his grace upon you. He's revealed this mystery of his will towards you and that he's uniting all things in Christ. Brethren, you're a part of that. Let's be thankful for that. So second... Beginning here in verse 11 is our second point. And this one is very to the point. He says, right there, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, okay, so Paul's telling you another thing right here. You get this repetition throughout this whole section. In him, in him, in love, in him. So you have kind of a new point here, but it's flowing right out of this first one. God's done all these things for you, and now here's some of the gifts that he's given to you. Oh, brethren, he's revealed his will to you. That's a gift. And here's the second one. And he just drops it on you like, not a big deal. (laughs) You've obtained an inheritance. (laughs) I mean, imagine if uh, someone came knocking on your door, and they're like, "Uh, Mr. So-and-so, and you're like, yes, sir. And they're like, you've obtained an inheritance. Here you go. And they just hand you a paper, big long list of all these things that you just inherited. I mean, that's kind of how I feel when I read this section. But Paul tells us, brethren in Christ, you've obtained an inheritance. Okay, what have we obtained, right? And and Paul doesn't spell this out really at all in this section, but he's going to later in Ephesians, and Paul does elsewhere, and the Bible does elsewhere. So let's take a a look at a few other places so we can kind of have a couple of helpful clues as what's this great inheritance that we've just been given that just dropped on our doorstep? And so uh, here's a few of them. So the first one is this. So in the next section, and I mean right here in 13 and 14. So hold your finger at 11, and let's go all the way to 13, just a few verses down. And right in this next section, Paul is going to say that we have the Spirit of God, right? The, the, the promised Spirit, who is what? Who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So... Um, now, some translations, you may, I don't know if we all have the same one, but some translations have it, and you probably know it very well as this, has often been translated as a down payment. Um, uh, uh, so instead of saying who's the guarantee, it would say who's the down payment of our inheritance. Now, I think this is really important because it says something about what our inheritance is, and, and here's how I'm, I'm getting that. So when you read there in uh, 13 and 14, 
And he says, this spirit who's the guarantee of our inheritance, think about it like a down payment. And, and, and you need to note that the, that the spirit here, the spirit's not just a guarantee of something else that you'll have later. Now, sometimes when you redeem something, it can work like that. I can get a piece of paper, and if I take it to the store, I can redeem it for an item. Well, that paper is absolutely meaningless after that, right? Um, but I don't want you to think about it like that with the Spirit. You're not just given the Spirit so that once you receive your inheritance, it's like, bye-bye, Holy Spirit. <laughs> you know, I throw you away in the trash like I throw that paper in the trash. So, so here, I want you to note that the Spirit's not just simply a guarantee, though it is, but I, I like the translation of a down payment because, brother, look, what happens when I put a down payment for something? I'm actually putting a, a real amount towards something uh, so that when I get the fullness of it, I still have that original down payment, right? I didn't lose it. It's not some cheap paper. It's like I go get a house and I put a down payment for that. I have that money in that house. And once I have the full house bought and I don't pay any money for the house anymore, I didn't lose that down payment. It's in my house, right? So it's, it's the same thing here with the Spirit. This is not just some kind of guarantee of some distant thing we're going to receive later that has nothing to do with the Spirit. The Spirit, I want you to know, is directly related to the inheritance. Does that make sense? The Spirit is going to be directly connected to this inheritance, which means the Spirit and the inheritance are not separate things. So... You know, Kyle, I say, hey, brother, you have the inheritance and the spirit's part of your down payment. And you go, what do you mean I have part of my inheritance? Well, it's like the spirit and the, and the inheritance, they're like rings tied together. You can see two separate things, but they're, they're not totally separate. They're tied together. And, and, and this is the idea, I think, that's embedded right here, that the spirit and the inheritance are not separated things, but are directly related. And the spirit, brethren, is the down payment and proof that the inheritance you're going to receive is something that you currently have in part. That I have part of the inheritance. How do I know that? I got the Spirit. So if I have the Spirit, then I know I'll get the full thing because they're connected together. And I really want us to see this because Paul notes this on later too in Ephesians 5. So I think he speaks a little bit to this as well as um, later on in Ephesians. So this is Ephesians 5.5. 5. He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom, or excuse me, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, here's what's interesting about that text, right? Here you have this idea put in the negative. Who doesn't receive something? Who doesn't receive an inheritance? Well, it's those who are sexually immoral, they're impure, or they're covetous. What does it say about them? They have no inheritance, so there's our word again, in what? In the kingdom. In the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of Christ and of God. These are the kind of people that have no inheritance in this. And then when you go on and read Ephesians chapter 5 later on, what does he tell them to do? Well, then you look carefully how you walk and, and be wise. Be filled up with the Spirit. So you get this contrast here right again. And you have this contrast right here of this inheritance being tied together with the Spirit. And here we get a little bit more of the connection then of, okay, 
Not only is the Spirit a part of this inheritance that Paul's talking about back in verse 11, but it's also the kingdom. And we hear this else place too. So this is Jesus saying something similar in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says this. This is when he separates the sheep from the goats. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. I mean, that sounds like Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has what? Blessed us, right? Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Here's our word again. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So what's the inheritance being tied to here in Jesus' words? The kingdom. That's right. So now we have a few connections going on right here. Paul's connected for us in Ephesians. Well, part of that inheritance is the Spirit of God, and part of that inheritance is the kingdom. And here in Acts chapter 1, I think you get this great union of both of them perfectly together when Luke is writing the beginning of Acts. So here's Acts chapter 1, 1 through 4. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now pay attention right here. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Pause. What's Jesus doing for the 40 days? What's he speaking to them about? The kingdom of God. Now let's continue. And while staying with them, this is not a new thought. This is what he's doing. 40 days with them, teaching about the kingdom of God. And while he's staying with them, here's part of this teaching about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, so now here's the promise. You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So you get this beautiful picture of it. Luke jumps back and forth from kingdom and spirit. Kingdom and spirit. He's got no problem doing it. He just does it. Jesus talks about the kingdom for 40 days. And guess part of what the kingdom talk is? It's about the spirit of God. And so now we know from Paul there in, well, not Paul there in Acts, but from Paul in Ephesians, from Jesus in the New Testament, Paul elsewhere says this in different places, and right here in Acts, when we go now back to chapter 1, verse 11, and it says, In him we've obtained an inheritance. Well, brethren, now we know this inheritance a little bit more defined. It's got two things wrapped up into it, the Spirit of God and the kingdom. And I just want us to pause right there and then just reflect on then what he is saying. Right? The inheritance that Paul has in mind is the kingdom of God for the Christian. And he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance. And this fits well with, I think, the entire context of Ephesians, right? And all, all these other New Testament passages, brethren, you see the inheritance and the uniting of things in heaven and on earth. The reason this thing is happening, the reason this, Paul can say this is something that you have is because of what? Jesus reigns. And that's the disciple response every time they make this kind of argument. Well, how have we obtained an inheritance? Well, Paul's going to say later on in 15, well, for this reason, here's why. This is because Christ has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. In Acts, in Acts chapter 2, how do they explain the, the kingdom and the spirit and the promised inheritance that they're going to receive? Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father. 
Rather, you just see this all over the place. This makes this kind of thing possible, but this is also the thing that you've obtained in Jesus Christ, the kingdom. And brethren, does that not make you happy? I mean, did, did you realize what we actually have? I mean, you think about some of those passages like Ephesians and Corinthians. It says, there are people who do not inherit the kingdom of God. There are certain people, certain things that if persisted in and done in, in rebellion and, 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 and in continual disobedience, brethren, there are people who don't inherit this kind of thing. But he looks at Christians and he says, you have obtained an inheritance. And he's, as he's going to go on and relate this in 13 and 14, the way that you know that you've obtained this inheritance is because you have the promised seal of what? The Holy Spirit. Well, now you know why. It's because those two things go together. You have that connection of both those things. So let's, let's look then at our last two verses, 13 and 14. So we have the, the mystery of the will being revealed. God's uniting all things in Jesus. Second, you've obtained this great inheritance, which means you're a partaker of the kingdom of God, which has come about in Jesus Christ. Now third, and I think this is just as important, this is your guarantee that you have this inheritance. And here's what Paul says beginning in 13. He says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. So, following that same train of thought that we just left in our second point, but right back here in our third point, and now even stronger. I mean, now if we were confused at all, or, or maybe lacking some information, Paul is supplying that information for us now. This inheritance that we have, well, now we know that there's a guarantee of this inheritance, and this guarantee is part of our down payment of this inheritance. It's the Spirit of God Himself. And he says right there, in him you also. I mean, brethren, this is something that Jesus Christ, I mean, this really gets us back to eight when he says he's lavished his grace upon you. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's like, a, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It happened to me because my parents, you know, they're really good to me and they spoiled me too. But it's like at Christmas and I just, sometimes I think about, you know, you're sitting there and you can get a gift and you're like really thankful and maybe it was one really nice gift. Well, what happens when you get a second one? and then a third one, and then a fourth one. I mean, sometimes it's like the weight and the immensity of how many good gifts you're getting, it almost overwhelms you. Like, oh, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to receive all these good things. I'm not a great person. You shouldn't be getting me all these good things. But brethren, it's like in Christ, it's just this unending flow of blessing. And here he says it again, in him you also. It's just like, Lord, why would you give us so many good things? Why? His brother, it's just because he loves you. And here's the last thing that he gives. He gives you not just the Spirit, brother, and this is true. This is the guarantee of your inheritance that you will receive the kingdom in its fullness. I mean, this is the kind of thing that he is promising here. And I want you to hear just this direct connection of the promise and the Spirit, and this inheritance of the kingdom. And just to hear how vast a gift this last one is. A, a, 
of just how overwhelming this last gift to us is as Christians. So I'm going to read you a few texts, and then I'm going to piece them together. So you can just listen. So here, Paul uses similar language to talk about the promise. And here he's going to relate it to the Spirit. So here's what he says in Galatians 3. Paul says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Now he's going to talk about what this is. So that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Right? So this is very interesting because Paul's argument in that section is, well, if the promise is received through law, well, then, then grace is null and void. But he says, no, no, no. The promise from the beginning, even with Abraham, is he received God's promise by faith. So he's telling us here in Christ, the blessing of Abraham is related to the promised spirit. Because notice he says, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Well, what happens out through the book of Acts? Especially when you get to Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. What's the big commotion about? Well, Cornelius is a Gentile. And the Spirit of God falls upon them. They begin to speak in tongues, praising the Lord. And what do they do? They go, well, what else can we conclude? It looks like the Spirit of God's gone out to the Gentiles. How can we withhold baptism? So, brethren, we, we see this kind of thing. The, the, the blessing and the promise of Abraham that was to go out to not just the Jews, but the Gentiles in faith was the promised Spirit. And he says something very similar to this later on in 16. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, notice what Paul is going to do with this in a different letter that he writes in Romans. But he's going to interchange what the promise is. In Galatians, he's talking about the spirit. And here in Romans, he's going to say something a little bit different. But notice he's going to use very similar language that he uses here in Galatians. So here's what he says in Romans chapter 4. Paul says, for the promise to Abraham, so it sounds just like Galatians, right? The promise to Abraham, and we're thinking maybe spirit, and to his offspring. That sounds just like Galatians, right? For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be what? Here's the promise. Heir of the world. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through law, but came through the righteousness of faith. I mean, you see what Paul just did right there? Paul just interchanges these two ideas. He says, well, the promised inheritance, the spirit. Well, the promised inheritance, the world. <laughs> I mean, isn't that quite a jump? Isn't that, isn't that quite a thing to tell, hey, brother, sister, you believe in Jesus Christ? God personally gave you his spirit. Now, how about someone comes up to you at church next Sunday and wants to encourage you, brother, don't you forget, God has promised you as a child of Abraham, he's going to give you the world. <laughs> That's not usually the thing you turn to your neighbor to encourage them in. But brethren, this is part of the thing that he is encouraging the church in. And he's trying to remind people who have this kind of thing backwards. The promise of God, the spirit, the world, the kingdom, all these things tied together. This, thing, this kind of thing comes through faith. So when you go back to Ephesians chapter 1 now, and it says, in him, when you heard the word of, the tr of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Brethren, the Spirit really is this great down payment that the whole world one day will belong to God and therefore to his people. And this is not only just the guarantee of what you will receive, 
Brethren, it's the guarantee that you have this kind of thing. I mean, did anyone notice Paul get little skits right here from 11 to 13? He says in 11, he goes, you have obtained an inheritance. In 13, he says, you have a seal of the inheritance that you'll receive. I mean, he can just talk both ways. He can just go back and forth with this kind of thing. But he looks at these kind of promises, brethren. He says, this reality right now of your blessing in Jesus Christ is a real reality currently right now. You can look to the person afterwards and say, brethren, by faith, the world is yours. You are an heir with Jesus Christ. The whole world is ours. And we can say, how do we know this, brother? How can we say such a thing? I mean, try that on Main Street next time we go out. People think you're absolutely nuts. But brethren, it's because you have a guarantee of this kind of thing. You have the Spirit of God, which is the down payment of our inheritance, which is the inheritance of the world, the fullness of the kingdom. And brethren, this is the kind of thing that we, we hear about as, as, as promised because I want you, want you to notice what he says there in 13. He says, in him, right, you were sealed with, now listen, this isn't just the Spirit. It's the promised Holy Spirit. This is not, I mean, Paul didn't invent something. Jesus didn't make something up. He didn't just come in here and reshape everything and say, oh, Spirit, you know, this is how everything's going to work now. This is something God has intended from the absolute beginning and, and, and goes all the way back to what we read there in 9, the mystery of His will being revealed. In uniting all things. This is the kind of thing God has had planned since the beginning of time. So I want you to keep your finger there in Ephesians. We're going to read Isaiah 32. This was the Old Testament reading. Or this was not the Old Testament reading, excuse me. It was similar, but this was not it. We read Isaiah 11. This one is very similar here in Isaiah chapter 32. So I'm going to begin here at uh, 14 and read to 18. So Isaiah 32, 14, For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. A joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks until. The Spirit is poured, uh, is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Now flip on over to Joel chapter 2. Joel 2, beginning in 28 to 29. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. Brethren, we could have read 20, 30 plus extra verses. But those are two gigantic promises in the Old Testament that guess who brings those out in the New? The apostles. And they recognize that this thing that Jesus has brought in Him, 
Brethren, he's brought about this great kingdom, this great uniting of all things, and he's doing so by bringing about his spirit to fall upon people and to indwell people. So that when we read there, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Brethren, you can know this is something that God has promised. God promised this from a long time ago, which means this. God's put His, His name upon that promise. He's put His character on the line. You make a promise and you break it, well, what did you just do? You put your character on the line, right? So we don't speak promises. We shouldn't speak them just freely and openly and quickly. We should think about what we're saying. Brethren, and God did not forget to think about what He was saying here. He put His name upon this by saying, you were sealed with this promised Holy Spirit That goes all the way back to God's intention. And His intention was to fill His people with the Spirit. That's what He's going to do in the latter days. And what's going to be the result of God's Spirit dropping down? Well, the valleys in the wilderness are not going to be filled with all sorts of kind of violence and all sorts of wild animals. What's going to happen? Peace is going to abound. Righteousness is going to be abound. Things are going to flourish Brethren, it says, as we heard there in Isaiah 11 in the open reading, none shall hurt all in my holy abode, right, or his holy mountain. And then what's going to be the result of that? That the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the water covers the seas. Brethren, this is the kind of thing that God has guaranteed not just to do, but for you as a part of this kind of thing. This is the thing he's blessed you in. And you know that he's blessed you in this because you were sealed with this promised Holy Spirit, who he says right there in 14, who is the down payment or the guarantee of our inheritance. And brethren, this is, this is just one of those passages where we can think about just how thankful of a people We just ought to be for the kind of blessings God's lavished upon us. I mean, God gave his own spirit so that you would know without a doubt, I have sealed you and therefore I put a down payment. This thing's going to be yours. Because as we go on through Ephesians, guess what what happens to the end? Well, this doesn't just happen and this thing's not just some cakewalk. By the end, he tells them, hey, look out, put on the full armor of God. Because there's going to be days of testing. There's going to come days of battle. There's going to become days of waging war. You need to put on the full armor. You need to take up the spirit, which is what, or the sword, which is the spirit of the word of God, right? This, this very spirit you've been given as an inheritance and a down payment. Brethren, he wants you to remind you about that at the beginning so that when you get to the end, you got a good thing to remember, right? You got a good thing to remember. I've been given the spirit. I've been sealed with this. This thing's been guaranteed for me i already actually have a portion of it i've already obtained the inheritance i have the spirit so now i need to pick up the spirit of the word of god and i need to fight for this thing i need to stand in this thing so he says as he says there at the end in ephesians 6 so that you would stand in the evil day right that you would that you're not going to be moved and this is the kind of thing that the spirit of god does as well so i'm going to i'm going to end on on this text just with this idea But this is the kind of thing that you see here in Revelation. Revelation chapter 7. Brethren, the the Spirit, not only is it this 
down payment of your inheritance, this seal, you know, and, and it's often explained this way, and I don't think this is untrue, you know, the seal of God's approval, like a stamp, or, you know, how a king would, how would a king back then prove an authentic letter? Well, he'd have some melted wax, and he'd put his insignia on it, and he'd have to, that would be the stamp of his approval, the seal of his approval. And that idea is most certainly true, but it's not just a seal of God's approval. Brethren, I think when he says, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, brethren, this is also a, a seal of security. That the Spirit was also given to you to secure something for you, to keep you into something. Because this is how this idea gets picked up later on in the Bible. So in Revelation chapter 7, here's what it says. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Now, I'm just going to explain this for you. What's being held back is wrath. Before this, all these seals get opened, and what you have is wrath. Wrath is being poured out against these evildoers. Wrath's being poured out against a disobedient people. So that's what's being held back right now. So then in two, he says, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, So they've been told to hold this wrath back, even though they've been given power to do it. And here's what this angel tells them to do. He says, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000. So part of this sealing, brethren, is not just God's stamp of approval on us. It, and it's not simply just, oh yeah, we know we're going to get this thing. Brethren, this is supposed to act as like a security stamp. This is God's seal of approval upon you. And just, just like he, he's doing for these martyrs in there, he is sealing them out before wrath comes upon. Because sometimes in God's wrath, unbelievers take believers with them. Believers perish. I mean, you go on and read Revelation 7. What follows the sealing of these 144,000? You get this scene of this great multitude in heaven. And John asks, who are all these people that I'm seeing right now? And he goes, well, these are all the people who came out of the tribulation, right? And, and, and the idea is these are all these people who were martyred throughout this tribulation. And, and brethren, this, this paints it even better for us as well of what the, the Christian's ultimate hope is too. Brethren, in Him, you've been sealed, secured for the final day of salvation when you will receive your inheritance in full. You know what that means, brethren? That means even if you're martyred. <laughs> because you would think it's almost kind of a counterintuitive idea. There in Revelation 7, all these people get sealed, and then there's this great scene of all these people who died and are in heaven. <laughs> so you would think, well, what was the good of the seal? I mean, the, it sounds like he told them, hold back the wrath, let's seal these people, and then all these people get killed. Well, Burton, that's because the, the point of the sealing was not just to protect them physically, though it may, but even if they get martyred, even if they go down and, and, and die and, and, and they go off to heaven, brethren, the ceiling is that they would receive the reward of their inheritance full when everything's said and done. And so that's why under the throne you have those martyrs and they're asking God, bring vengeance about, bring vengeance about, 
bring our promises to bear. Give us what you promised because it looks like we don't have it. And so here, brother, not only is God letting us know he has promised this thing to us, and you can be sure God's going to give this thing to us because he's given us the Spirit. Brethren, he's sealed you with the Spirit as well. He has put it over you in such a way that even in death, we can still receive our full promised inheritance. And it'll be to the praise of his glory, as he says right there at the end. So, brother, as we think about all these things then, want us to think back right there to verse 8. These are the things which God has done for you in love, which he says there, he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And he's made known these things to you. So, brethren, I, I pray that he's made this known to us this morning and that we would be a people, as he says, a people to the praise of his glory. Because we're a thankful people. And brethren, we're a people who know what God has done for us. And we say, bless God. So let's pray.